condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hi everyone, welcome back to the Behind the Headlines. It's August 21st, and in the studio today, on the west side of the Atlantic, we have William Barbe. How are you doing, everyone? And myself, Harrison Cayley. And across the pond, um, who we got over there? We got little old me. Joe Quinn. And we have Neil. Hey, and we have a special guest this week, another Neil. Hello. Hi. This isn't the trick. There's two Neils here. <clears throat> yes, that, that's not Neil's alter ego. That's actually another person. Neil one <laughs> and Neil two. Yes. Okay, so we'll refer using those terms, Neil one and Neil two. Sounds All good. Right. <laughs> okay, well, okay. Um, we're just going to cover some recent stories from the past week or so um what should we start out with maybe how about yemen i want to talk about yemen a bit yeah. get that out of the way so for we i mean we've mentioned yemen several times on the show i don't think we've ever like went into it too in too much detail but uh, i'm pretty sure probably all sought readers are aware roughly of what's going on in yemen with the the war currently going on saudi arabia primarily with their U.S. backing uh, foreign weapons supplied primarily by the U.S., U.K., numerous other countries, and their foreign mercenaries are waging a war on Yemen and have been doing so for the past year and a half. And there have been a, a few... It's been in the news recently, especially in the U.K. and the U.S., because as a result of several recent atrocities, you know, bombings of hospitals, children being killed in Saudi airstrikes... It's been in the news, and there's been a lot of kind of public and official outcry against the U.S. and U.K. governments for continuing to supply billions of dollars of weapons to Saudi Arabia. And so I think, well, in that situation, governments like that kind of feel the heat of a little bit of public pressure. And just to get... Like I said, we haven't gone into too much detail, so I just want to give a little bit of background on what's going on and how it got to this point. Now, if at any, now this is just from my own um, kind of cursory research, so if any of you guys have any more details or I get something wrong, just feel free to jump in and tell me. But um, prior to 2012, the leader of uh, Yemen was this guy, Saleh, and he had ruled the place for about 33 years. First, he was the leader of North Yemen, and then when... North Yemen and the South unified, he ruled the, the whole country. So for the last 17 years of those 33 years, this guy Hadi was his vice president. Now, this, like I said, was up till 2012. Now in 2004, there's this group, the Houthis, and they'd been around for the previous 10 years and they were a nonviolent group. But in 2004, they launched an insurgency, and this was... Uh, this was in response to the leader, Saleh, 
um, calling for the Houthis, the Houthi leader's arrest. So we had the Houthis who are anti-Saleh. Saleh tried to arrest their their leader, and so they launched a, a violent, you know, insurgency against Saleh. Now in February 12, after I guess what eight years of this kind of civil war fighting insurgency going on, the um, uh, they decided to have an election. Now, Saleh arranged it so that Hadi, his vice president, would become the new the new president. And so they had this election in February of 2012, and Hadi's name was the only one on the ballot. So he was the only candidate running, and there was just, you can look at a picture of the ballot, there's his his face, and then a, a circle where you check you check him for president. So, of course, being the only guy in the ballot, he won 99.99% of the vote. Um, and apparently, uh, I think around 60% of people voted. So, pretty high turnout, but with one person on the ballot, uh, not a legitimate election. And even then, he um, he basically he won a two-year term. Now, February 2014 comes around, and he's still president. And I think that caused some um, some resistance, especially among the Houthis. And in September of that year, so several months after that, um, the Houthis seized the capital of Yemen, Sana'a. And with this back and forth, this conflict going on, Hadi eventually agreed to this power-sharing arrangement between all the fighting parties, um, which he reneged on. He never actually um, went through with this power-sharing power arrangement. So in November of 2014, the Yemen Congress ousted Hadi as its president, and he formally resigned in January. So a couple years later, in January 2015, he resigned. And he reiterated this um, resignation, uh, I believe, in, Febru yeah, in February the next month. So it seems like this is, there, it all, kinds of makes, all kind of makes sense, at least until this point, where Hadi was the president, he should have been in there for two years. He wasn't. He stayed in. He wanted to stay in power, and he then tried to consolidate his power and to stay in for who knows how long. And so this caused the 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 Houthis to kind of rise up and rebel, take the capital. And at this point, with Hadi ousted, the UN called for his rein, to, to reinstate him as a president. And apparently, it's hard to verify, but there are rumors that there was actually, um, they were, the Houthis, all the parties were on the verge of a real power-sharing deal at this point, around the time that Hadi fled um, to Saudi Arabia and called on the Saudis to launch this war to get him back into power. And that was in March 2015. So ever since March 2015, this war has been going on with the um, Saudi-backed, well, Hadi with his uh, Saudi troops behind him. So that's the, that, that's been the state of play in Yemen for the past year and a half, is the Houthis basically fighting not only Saudi Arabia, but within, um, within Yemen itself, they're also fighting al-Qaeda in, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, which is basically kind of like what's going on in Syria. So in Syria they had uh, al-Nusra, in Yemen you've got ACAP, and the and ACAP and the Saudis just tend just coincidentally happen to get along and not get into very many um, conflicts themselves. So it's like a 
the Houthis are against, essentially fighting against al-Qaeda and Saudi Arabia, which, I mean, from one perspective, you could say that's pretty much the same thing. Uh-huh. And what, what developments were there this week? <laughs> well, this week, um, well, it starts, it, it goes back to July 28th when the Houthis and Saleh, who they were against for, you know, their first 10 years in operation, they actually joined forces and um, you know, put aside differences and formed this thing they called the Supreme Political Council. And then a week after that, the peace talks, the UN peace talks failed um, because essentially the Saudis and Hadi wanted total surrender on the part of the Houthis. And of course, that was not going to happen. So airstrikes started resuming um, beginning first week of August. So after that, Saudis launched, started their airstrikes. This is when we get the things that were in the news where they bombed a religious school, killed 10 children, injured 28. Um, but Doctors Without Borders responded, um, saying, you know, giving the death count and saying how horrible this was. The Saudis responded to Doctors Without Borders, saying, we would have hoped MSF would take measures to stop recruitment of children and fight in wars instead of crying over them in the media. Um, typical Saudi response. Same day, the political council acknowledged uh, was formally acknowledged by the Yemen parliament. So the, 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 all the surviving members of that parliament, there were 275 of them gathered and 138. So that's more than half um, voted to recognize this SPC. So officially legally, the SPC is the new government and these guys are legitimate. Hadi is no, is no, is not legitimate. So MS, uh, another, um, two days after that, a hospital was bombed, killed 19 people. This was a Doctors Without Borders hospital. Just like the the airstrike in Kunduz in Afghanistan, MSF had provided the coordinates to the Saudis, and they bombed the place anyways. So this week, August 20th, this was just, what, yesterday, um, the Pentagon has said they're removing their military assets. These are their the majority of their actual personnel on the ground assisting the Saudis in their um, campaign against Yemen. And um, they've kind of tried to weasel their way out of it, saying that the U.S. Uh, provided, quote, no direct or implicit approval of target selection or prosecution. So they're saying, we had nothing to do with these guys bombing all these people, which is totally ridiculous. Um, they know exactly what's been going on. And the same day, so August 20th, yesterday, hundreds of thousands of people gathered in Sana'a to support the the Houthi Saleh Supreme Political Council. So you can see the pictures. We've got one of them in the pictures for the show today. The it's just there's like I said, hundreds of thousands of people just all over the place. They're all in support of this new government. And what do the Saudis do? They bomb the capital. They bomb Sanaa. And last I heard, there were no um, no kind of reliable figures that I could find yet on the casualties. But um, it just I mean, I think they bombed the actual demonstration. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they. They dropped a bomb smack in the middle of mm -hmm. a sea of people. Yeah. And so people are running all over the place. Just think about that. 100,000 people supporting their government. There's just been this reconciliation between these two parties who were previously at war with each other, who have now unified, who have the, who have popular support. 100,000 people are gathered supporting them and the Saudis drop a bomb on them. I mean, pretty much. So and, that's what's going on in Yemen. Yeah. I would, for simplicity's sake, I would <coughs> recommend that the listeners swap out every mention of Saudi 
in the, in the story Harrison just told and replace it with US slash UK. You yeah. see, it goes a lot further than, than that the Saudi ham use weapons given to them by British Americans primarily, but also other uh, the French government as well. Um, they don't just arm them. They literally staff the high command in their military structures. Um, they, they're either seconded personnel from Western military structures or they're retired and now they're mercenaries and so they're hired as private contractors. They literally fly their jets in some cases. Um, they certainly command uh, the key forces. And they are inside the command centers, which they built inside Saudi Arabia, directing operations. So the statement by the U.S. that oh, <laughs> we, we have no involvement in choosing this target, actually the Saudis effectively subcontracted the selection of targets to the Americans mm-hmm. and the British. So and what I'm going with, where I'm going with this is that it's even – Many countries are, you know, beholden to Western interests in all kinds of ways and controlled in all kinds of ways. Saudi Arabia is like a ghost state. It's like it may as well. If you think that we speak figuratively of, you know, puppet masters and dangling strings, this is like Saudi Arabia is like a glove and they just put their hand all the way up inside it. And then it's pretty much a Western vassal state in toto, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to military. Yeah, you see Saudi. Yeah, you see Saudi Arabia. They employ the same techniques in war as the U.S. has been doing in in other countries like Iraq and uh, Afghanistan and uh, Libya. They they employ the same tactics and bombing hospitals and civilians and stuff like that. So it's 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 pretty clear that the U.S. has a big hand in that. And even then, they're being they're getting, you know, their backsides handed to them on a platter by this <laughs> rebel group, the Houthis. Which is um, pretty funny. I mean, I think it was uh, when we had Navid Nasser on the show, and he was describing the Saudis. And you can also find descriptions just you know all over the internet about them. How they their military is really a joke. They, all the major positions are basically hereditary. So you have these guys who have no actual military skill or talent in mm. in the high positions, and they have no idea what they're doing. They have all these weapons because of just billions of dollars of weapons because that's just the deal they have with the states. I mean, the U.S. gets the oil and the Saudis get the weapons, but they have no idea how to use them or what to do with them. And uh, so that's why they need the Americans to basically tell them what to do and the British. And even then, um, the they're losing to the Houthis, and they have been. And the Houthis actually have taken the war into Saudi Arabia. They've crossed the border. They've been attacking towns. And it was just, it was rich. I think the UN had, I think it was someone from the UN, maybe it was someone from the EU, I can't remember, had basically said, um, oh, you know, this is a, a terrible thing. The The conflict in Yemen should be, should be restricted to, um, you know, internal within Yemen. And, I mean, you're being attacked by a foreign country on your border and... They're saying that, oh, well, you just keep it in the country. You know, don't cross the border. Don't don't attack Saudi Arabia. Just keep it in Yemen. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Yemen is obviously, uh, historically, is quite important or has been quite important to Western powers. I mean, the British, it was part of, it was historically, it was only unified as a country in 1990, I think. And, um before that, it was split north and south, and the British uh, held southern 
which is more or less, you know, the whole part of the whole southern part of the country uh, as part of the British Empire, you know. Um, and during the 50s and 60s and stuff, there was a lot of unrest in Yemen. <clears throat> the Brits went in with uh, typical heavy handedness. You know, there's a lot of unrest in the sense of uh, trade union movements and, and socialist uh, political party up there basically looking for independence, wanting rid of the British, basically. And the British went in with typical heavy handedness at the time and killed a bunch of people and put down that particular um, Arab Spring revolt because it was against them as opposed to against somebody they didn't like. Um, and if you look at uh, what's been going on in the Middle East in general recently, I mean, um, Saudi Arabia is the, is, is the kind of last bastion of Western influence. And it was the, uh, I suppose it's not um, unusual in that sense because it was the first bastion of Western influence in the Middle East, um, primarily because of its oil reserves um, way back at the, at the turn of the uh, 20th century. So if you look at what's been going on in the Middle East uh, over the past number of years and the quagmires and the, uh, what the West have been trying to do in Syria, but what they tried to do in Iraq and in Syria and um, in Libya, what the Israelis have been trying to do in Lebanon, etc. It's all geared towards maintaining those uh, Arab countries as uh, Western client states with Western uh, puppet dictators or, or even democracies or something like that, but still fully aligned with the West. And people uh, in those countries are, are again, uh, uh, at this, you know, they, it happened in those countries uh, during the earlier earlier part of the first half of the 20th century and even into the 50s and 60s. And then it was put down, those kind of uh, nationalist movements were put down, but it's kind of come back again, you know, um, to some extent under the the... the under the ages of the Arab Spring over the past uh, number of years. But <clears throat> if uh, if Yemen were to fall, basically, and I mean, the Houthis, even I think it was um, uh, the Newsweek report in February 2015 when the when the kind of revolt uh, or insurgency, it depends, uh, depends what do you, what do you want to call it. Uh, when, when, there's a, when there's an uprising of people uh, in any country in the world against... Um, against Western influence in that country, the West calls it an insurgency. But when the West instigates the uprising to overthrow a democratically elected government that it doesn't like, then it's called a revolution. Uh, you know, because there are important distinctions between those two words, you know. Mm. Uh, bad people have insurgencies and good people have revolutions. So, um, but... It's, it's it's looking pretty bad, to be honest. Um, well, actually, I was going to say, yeah, The uh, in 2015 when it started, um, it was a report in Newsweek, <clears throat> of all places, that said that uh, the Houthis are fighting for things that all Yemenis crave. Government accountability, the end to corruption, regular utilities, fair fuel prices, job opportunities for ordinary Yemenis, and the end of Western influence. Now, as everybody can immediately understand from that, that those are completely unreasonable requests for anybody to make. Uh, and I mean, if you live in an oil-rich state where basically the oil is bubbling up out of the sands and you're paying top dollar, you're paying an exorbitant price for your oil, you should just suck that up and not complain about it, you know? It's obviously uh, just the way things are. 
you shouldn't complain about those things. Um, and if you live in a country, <clears throat> any country where, you know, the social services are very, where, where it's an oil-rich country, um, technically, or literally, there's a lot of wealth within the country because of oil, and you live in, uh, you're a large community, a large section of that country, a large demographic, and you don't have any uh, proper hospitals, proper ro- infrastructure, proper roads, proper schools and stuff. Well, that's also reasonable. You should just shut the hell up and accept that. Um, so, but obviously the Houthis are this strange breed of human being who doesn't accept that kind of thing. You know, um, government corruption, uh, no social services, no uh, no good infrastructure and high oil prices. They're a strange breed of people who don't like that kind of thing. And eventually it gets too much when they see um, the West... Uh, directly interfering in the, in their democratic uh, rights or their, their their democratic will effectively to have, uh, in the case of the Houthis, was to have their own kind of autonomous state in the north because, um, well, uh, they, they weren't being taken care of by by uh, the central government, so they wanted their own state and they were a separate kind of, they saw themselves as a separate group of people. Uh, so they... they they demanded this, and they see the they see the West interfering and pressing that and stopping them having uh, any kind of self determination or just basic basic decent life in their own country. Well, they eventually decide, okay, enough's enough, you know, um, and that's what it's about. But of course, you'll never hear that. I mean, you don't hear anything reported about Yemen basically in the Western press, except little tidbits here and there. Uh, let alone actual the actual truth of the situation, which is more or less what we've been describing. Um, so it's funny, you know, but, you know, not surprising at the same time. Uh, the, the West has for a very long time gone around the world and suppressed, uh, the very reasonable democratic and, uh, uh, aspirations to freedom of ordinary people around the world because it would have interfered with the West's influence in that country. And effectively, the West's exploitation of of that country, of its natural resources, of um, of the people themselves. Um, so, you know, we've looked at this for long enough. Uh, by long enough, I mean like fifteen years. Um, to see that it's not very complicated, you know, the only complicated thing is human nature and people's inability to grasp uh, or to accept things that they don't. Uh, want to accept or to grasp or to accept things that conflict with the beliefs that they have. That's the main problem. Actually understanding what's going on in the world is very, very simple. It's just what I said. The West has for the past 100, 200, if you want to go back a few hundred years to the British Empire, basically between the British and the Americans and the French and a few others thrown in there, uh, they have over the past few hundred years gone on in the world suppressing freedom and democracy everywhere and exploiting the resources and the human capital of, of of, the, of other countries in the world. And that has led to conflict. And sometimes they've initiated conflict themselves just to bomb people back to the Stone Age for having the temerity to ask for, you know, decent jobs or, you know, decent uh, salaries or decent infrastructure. That's pretty much it. I mean, it's not... Uh, Same formula. It's not rocket science. The only thing mm-hmm. that's changed is the narrative reasons mm-hmm. for doing so. Um, in older times, it was... The civilizing mission was, well... We have to civilize them. Um, and they became frankly racist, but then that changed after World War One, and then Cold War came along, and it was, well, 
if if we put the Cold War narrative over Yemen today, it would be that, well, well this is a communist insurgency and they're being directed by Moscow, well, so that, we have to. That was the narrative yes. in the 50s and 60s when they had trade unions. And I mean, trade unions in any war in the Western world or even the Middle East or anywhere in the world, really, they, they, the word trade unions uh, during the 50s and 60s, which was, as most people know what a trade union is, it's a group of workers who get together and demand decent, uh, decent pay and decent salaries or decent uh, conditions and decent salaries. Uh, the word trade union in the 50s and 60s in any country in the world where the, US, the West had an interest was synonymous with the uh, pinky red communist threat under the bed. Uh, so I asked just for a decent salary off their employer without being accused of being a communist and having the US inter- intervene and bomb their country and put down their rebellion. So, um, but yeah, today it's... Today the narrative is war on terror, so terrorize these people so that they're not terrorized by those other people who we put into the country covertly. Um, precisely the same formula was used in Mali. Out of the blue, it seemed to French people, their country was at war with Mali in 2012. It's not really out of the blue, it's part of a status quo, but the French sent in a large um, uh, series of, 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 of a few waves, actually, of, of troops on the ground in Mali, and just under the justification that they were there to fight Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, as opposed to in Yemen, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. <clears throat> but actually, it was to put down a growing insurgency, in quotes, um, that was cross-ethnic all mm. across Mali. It was basically an, an actual revolution. Right. And they had to stress that. And what were those people complaining about? Uh, but, uh, primarily, the people in Mali were complaining about the fact that uh, Mali, as a former French colony, uh, one of several in Africa, uh, uh, has to, uh, still does, pay a colonial tax to France. I think in total from the various French colonies in Africa uh, that are long since, apparently France France doesn't have any colonies in Africa anymore. Um, But uh, together they're all paying about half a trillion dollars, I think the the estimate was about $500 billion uh, to France in colonial taxes which is, uh, you know, a, a payment, an ongoing into the future payment by these former colonies for, like, uh, as, 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 as compensation to France for bestowing on them the wonders the, of civilization. The wonders of civilization. It's, it's back pay, yeah. Exploitation. <laughs> so um, it's funny, you know, it's all a big hilarious joke, really. I mean, there's a stand-up comedy routine in this that wasn't uh, actually really happening, you know. Um, so I was saying about Yemen, yeah, I mean, if you look at Yemen, it's right there on the, on the south of, uh, the, whatever you call that chunk Arabian, of Arabian Middle Peninsula. <laughs> the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, yeah, that place. Um, and you've got Saudi Arabia right in the middle there, and then above that, you've got Iraq. Oops, Iraq went a bit pear-shaped. Uh, Syria, totally gone pear-shaped. You've got Iran, big country on the right-hand side. Then Turkey, it's all gone horribly wrong for the West and Turkey. Basically, and then you've just got little old Israel there, Jordan, which is like, Jordan, what the hell are you doing? You know, came with a picture. But that's just really, I don't know what, I don't know, I don't know what it's even about Jordan. <clears throat> um, but anyway, Saudi Arabia is kind of last, the last head chopper standing, basically. That's Western backed head choppers standing, really. And that's why they're so, uh, they're so, 
concerned about Yemen, you know, and it's not just because obviously Yemen has quite a lot of oil reserves and stuff, and it it was strategically important. Plus, <clears throat> um, the Gulf of Aden is right, right there, right down through the Suez Canal and down to the Red Sea and into for access to basically to Africa. It was very important for the British Empire in terms of from the Med having access instead of having to go all the way around Africa, which took like you know years or something. Um, through the Suez Canal, down the Red Sea and out, and then straight across the Arabian Sea, whatever, to India, to the jewel in the British Crown. And um, so it was very important, and this is just 50, 60 years ago, you know, and, and before that. But it's also still strategically important today, you know, for similar reasons, because, you know, there's a lot of, obviously, a lot of trade still goes through. Substantially uh, the uh, same uh, reason. The same reason. 90% or less, yeah. of trade is right. still conducted on the seas. Right. So, it, you know, it's a port, it's right there, It's it's got a little pointy bit sticking out where you can you can throttle the, the Red Sea uh, access to uh, to the Arabian Sea and to over to India and stuff. And of course, who would who would do that if they got hold of it? Well, uh, Russia would definitely do that, you know. Um, and Iran and everybody else in the Middle East, if they all got their act together. Of course, the people in the Middle East would have no problem doing this and saying, yeah, let's all use our resources for ourselves and screw America and screw the West, screw Foreign, foreign interference. Um, but they're not allowed to. Well, the only way they've been prevented from coming to that conclusion is by repeated Western interference in Middle Eastern Arabian Peninsula uh, countries and governments and setting up public dictators and supporting them. Like in Saudi Arabia, I mean, nobody needs us to tell them this. I mean, Saudi Arabia is uh, ruled by a bunch of head choppers, people who enjoy chopping the heads off people. But apparently it's the best friend of America who loves freedom and democracy. Don't, shouldn't those two hate each other? I mean, shouldn't they really be best enemies forever they think but no I mean so obviously uh, the ordinary people in Saudi Arabia aren't really cool with that you know but well if you like to keep your head on your shoulders you'll shut the hell up you know so uh, and if if you have the if you have the cojones to, to do anything about it well you'll probably get bombed by America so uh, but it's looking really bad in that if you look at the map of it just look at the way it's changed you know the US and the Brits etc had it all their own way for a long time in the Middle East, and obviously it's extremely uh, resource-rich, oil-rich, gas-rich as well. Um, but it's it's all not looking good anymore, like I was saying. You know, they may, they screwed up big time in Iraq. They're desperately holding on to Iraq. They're not doing very well there. Syria, oops. Uh, yeah, Assad should have been gone by now. But he isn't because of Russia. Uh, Turkey, yeah, you tried to overthrow the Turkish government, and they're not very happy about it. Uh, so they're friends with Russia now as well. Iran is like, cool, you know, at least now we have somebody to actually work with. Let's Russia in, you know, basically today said, yeah, you can have our, what's the name, Hamanim or whatever, air base for as long as you want it. Hamadan. Uh, Russian, uh, yeah, uh, Russian planes now, more or less, you know, for foreseeable future stationed to have an air base in Iran. We'll have one probably soon in Turkey if they if they want it. And certainly there's been more talk about that today. Uh, uh, our Turkish foreign minister or someone saying, and the Turkish government saying, yeah, they can have it if they want it. They haven't asked us. The only thing they're saying is that, that Russia is to my access to Encerlik Air Base. Um, is not true. They haven't asked, but the Turks are saying if they want it, sure, they can have it. Uh, and we'll sell them some American nukes if they want them as well. So... Uh, <laughs> Well, the the breaking news, or we saw a report today that 
that claim the U.S. has started moving those nukes out of Incirlik. Yeah, but then Romania has uh, denied, denied that something. and said the Americans saying, well, the Romanians don't have any way to safely store our nukes, so it can't be Romania. But then farm, somebody in Foreign Policy magazine or something, somebody in some think tank in the U.S. was saying, yeah, you know, you got to get our nukes out of there because it's no longer stable because we tried to overthrow the government. <laughs> yeah, that's really bad. But yeah, I have a statement from, the, they stress that a protracted civil conflict in Turkey would yeah. make the fate of the weapons uncertain. And then Sputnik added, comma, referencing the attempted coup in Turkey on July 15th. But are they referencing the coup or are they referencing what's to come in Turkey, specifically some kind of major attempt to civil warize Turkey. So they're getting the nukes out before things yeah. they hope turn turn to hell in Turkey. Well, and among, there was another major bomb yesterday. I know, and that's the that's that third there was three uh, about three or four days ago in Turkey. And it's I mean not to to their own horn here or whatever, but uh, I mean I wrote an article on the situation right after the coup and I said, well what can what can Turkey expect? What can Erdogan expect? And I said well, like, uh, more terror attacks, more car bombings, um, <clears throat> an upswing in the uh, in the Kurd Kurdish insurgency, uh, maybe possibly ISIS. You know, carrying or deciding that Turkey is now its enemy. You know, I mean, I'll figure that out. That's the way the empire works. You know, but that's what's happened. Turkey's being, you know, being. Bombed. It was being bombed before the coup by by some, some weird terrorist groups, ISIS, whoever, uh, or or the Kurds, and and now it's also been bombed after the coup. So yeah, um, Turkey's in a bit, of, and it's really in Turkey's interest now, obviously, to sort out the situation and get rid, you know, put a a period on the on the ISIS Daesh situation to really work with Russia and Iran and the Iraqis uh, and Hezbollah to. Uh, finish off this whole uh, jihadi mercenary, U.S. U.S. Western-backed jihadi mercenaries in Syria and elsewhere, uh, and to get rid of as many of them as possible. You know, send them all off to to heaven. Yeah, that's why I think he did his sudden about face with Putin. Um, Sultan Erdogan is now suddenly best friends with Putin, and uh, I think. Erdogan himself is not that uh, virtuous of a character, but um, he was probably offered by Putin if he had a certain degree of loyalty mm -hmm. that uh, he would be, his country would be okay. He would be saved to a certain degree. Yeah. And uh, he would be protected. Right. If and uh, Putin, being the chess master that he is, can use Erdogan, who is mainly in it for himself, as a force for good mm -hmm. um, by allowing him, uh, offering him self-preservation, because they see over there that um, the clamp is coming down from the empire, and they're all just going to be wiped out if they don't do something. And right. I think it ties in with Putin's idea of establishing a Eurasian Union. Um, if, like Joe was saying, with Saudi Arabia being the last bastion kind of of Western imperial influence in the area, if 
Saudi Arabia was cordoned off, um, a lot of these terrorist schemes would kind of collapse because the supply lines would be disrupted. Right. You could still have the CIA going in with small scale operations, psychological warfare and arming gangs and stuff, but it wouldn't really be enough to overthrow a country with a functioning government. Right. And that would suddenly take all of these resources away from the empire and be a counterbalance to them. That would be, you know, half the world basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. Um, if, if it falls, I mean, if Saudi Arabia goes, uh, as in you get rid of those silly head choppers, chop their heads off, maybe give them a taste of their own medicine. Um, then, yeah, Western influence is kind of pretty much gone, largely in the Middle East, and there'd be a long track record there for any new governments to realize that, you know, let's not bother doing business with anybody in, in the Middle East anymore. And, yeah, I mean, as as most people have been saying for over the past four or five years, the prime mover and shaker in terms of creating ISIS and, and you know, facilitating the, the movement of ISIS uh, into Syria and Iraq, etc., has, has been Saudi Arabia. The Saudis have been the prime movers and shakers. So if they're gone, that's it. I mean, there's no more. You can't, as as Neil was saying, you you can have your kind of uh, covert wars or covert operations where you go and plant a bomb here or there or assassinate someone here or there or whatever, but you can't have um, your jihadi armies anymore. You know what I mean? If you don't have that kind of influence in the Middle East, you can't create an entire army like they did with with ISIL. Um, and you even have Putin uh, sort of setting an example with the covert warfare going after the NGOs right. and various front organizations, shell companies and so forth. And uh, the Western media is like, oh, he's a dictator. He's cracking down on all the, these freedoms and stuff. And that's why Putin is so evil. And it's all just a sham, really, to... Uh, subjugate to try to subjugate Russia into the Atlanticist ideology. And the Russians have realized that uh, they're kind of being backed into a corner where the only choice is to, um, you know, polish the United States shoes and kiss their feet or uh, stand up for themselves and have some degree of sovereignty. And they're trying to do that in as, um, suave away as possible that doesn't um really require world war three mm-hmm. um there it ties in with china's silk road concept uh china and russia are working together where they can use the economic um structures similar to the united states but in a way that's less pathological where they can simply say, well, we don't need your money anymore. We're not influenced by it. Mm-hmm. And if you want to continue to be a bully, uh, you're going to pay the price because you don't have that authority over us anymore. Right. And if the uh, somewhat controlled chaos of the Middle East is eliminated and Russia can bring all of those countries into the Eurasian Union with a... Um, promise of prosperity kind of like the European Union was touted to be um, there's simply they've all been kicked out uh, 
Asia is off limits to them. Asia has some degree of sovereignty back again. They are at least an equal to the United States, if not in a somewhat superior position. You, the monopolar world is gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, I, I have a, a, a small but clear example. Sorry, William. Oh, Wait, can I, I just give a small example of of how um, U.S. firepower, which is usually their main tactic and the one that, you know, nothing will usually get in its way, whatever about kicking out NGOs and confronting the, the U.S. and the West at the economic level. Here's a small but direct example of its firepower already being reduced by all of these other things that are going on. On Friday in Syria, in the northeast of Syria, U.S. jets were deployed. It's not clear from where, maybe from from ships on the Med. They were sent into Syria illegally, of course, because they're not supposed to be there. But anyway, they're in Syria. They're flying over. They were going to warn off Syrian jets who were attacking terrorist sites uh, in Hasaka, which is in the northeast of the country. Mm -hmm. The U.S. said, they did this to protect some of the moderates, specifically the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is reconstituted rebel moderates, which they invented, so to speak, in October last year as a reaction to Russia suddenly coming on the scene. Mm-hmm. So they're on the back foot already. Okay, they had to create this SDF, and now they send in their jets to protect them because the Syrians are attacking them, trying to clear them out of this city. Uh, oh, yeah, and U.S. Special Forces were embedded with them, so they were there on the ground with them, and that was their rationale for why they sent jets to, to at least warn off or maybe engage with the Syrian fighter jets. In any event, nothing happened because the Syrians had already done their work and gone. Mm-hmm. Well, I- so they arrived on the scene. We're here. We're here to marshal, to police to, to keep you all safe, <laughs> but there's no one there to well, do that, any of that. Well, that's a direct response. That's a direct result of uh, the, the states in this coup trying to get rid of Erdogan and them being effectively denied uh, use of Inserlik Air Base because Inserlik Air Base is still kind of shut down. Or that's what they're saying, that there's no jets flying out of there. Inserlik Air Base would have been the place for uh, U.S. jets to, to stage that intervention from to the north of Syria because it's quite close. But they uh, weren't able to get there in time because they had to come from somewhere else further away so it's uh, it's already causing the problems but what they were what they were doing there these u.s operators that are embedded with um with this free syrian army or syrian democratic forces or the free democratic front for the popular liberation of syrian <laughs> cats anyway uh they um those there were Kurds there as well, and the U.S. is working directly with the Kurds on the ground. And it seems that the U.S. strategy seems to be now, which is actually just going to make things worse for them. It's their la- it's the only thing they can do. But they're trying to um, they're trying to support the Kurds or the those Kurdish factions. They can get together to uh, create a a homeland, basically a separate state. They're trying to create a new country in the north of Syria, all along the Turkish border, uh, which is their strategic kind of move to. Get, create a new country and, and gain control of it, have it as a new client state in the Middle East that will then have some say in the routing of, for example, pipelines or whatever from the Middle East through Turkey into um, into to Europe, right? Because um, that's their that's their goal all along. I mean, part of this part of the reason for the whole Syrian revolution that was started, uh, Syrian civil war that was started by the U.S. with their jihadi proxy jihadi forces was. Um, to to screw over Russia, basically, to take Middle Eastern gas 
primarily from Qatar in the Persian Gulf and routed up uh, through Iraq, through Syria and into Turkey and then into Europe and provide Europe with Qatari gas uh, at, uh, and thereby supplanting Russian gas supplies, you know, basically make um, Europe independent or more independent from Russia and hit Russia economically as a result. Uh, that was a major reason for them, them going into Syria in the first place to get rid of Assad because Assad was like, no, I'm going to stick with my, uh, with our, with our Russian friends basically. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to be friends with the West basically at the expense of Russia because Russia is a historical friend of Syria. And I'm not going to uh, make a deal with you and Qatar and the West and Saudi Arabia to run gas through Syria to, through Turkey and stuff. And of course, Turkey was supposed to be, was was assumed to be a friend already because it was a long-time NATO partner and all that kind of stuff. There wouldn't be a problem with Turkey. But, uh, with, and that's the reason why Russia intervened because Russia had a strategic interest. They were trying to basically screw over Russia by uh, getting rid of Assad. Uh, that would then have caused, uh, as I said, um, Russian gas to be supplanted by Qatari gas. So uh, Russia intervened and it hasn't gone their way. So now the next plan is, okay, let's create a little country here using the Kurds to have this strip of land, which is basically a block between uh, the rest of the uh, Arabian Peninsula and Turkey and into Europe. Um, But the problem with that is that's just going to piss both. Obviously, Syria doesn't want that to happen. A chunk chunk of their territory be taken away, Assad doesn't want that to happen. Turkey is very uh, unlikely to want to see a, a Kurdish state created in Syria on the Turkish border because it could easily be extended into Turkey. It would just inflame the whole Kurdish situation in, in Turkey. Uh, Iraq has the same problem. There's Iraq, Kurds in the north of Iraq who want their own country, and Iraq's like, no way, we're not going to support the setting up of, a, of an Iraqi or a Kurdish state in Syria because what will happen to, to us, we, you know, we'll, we'll lose a chunk of our land as well. There'll be, a, there'll be clamoring for more Kurdish land in Iraq and Iran as well as a bunch of Kurds who want independence. So by, by trying to create this Kurdish uh, country, new country in the top of Syria, the US, it's the only thing they can do. But uh, at the same time, uh, they're going to piss off everybody who they need in the, in the, in the region to, of the, who they've tried in the region to control and, and to, to be friends with. Grasping at straws. Yeah, it's just a ridiculous situation. And it's, at this point, it's, why would you even bother anymore? You know, when you've lost so much and you, you obviously things have not gone your way or not going your way, there's no foreseeable way they can go your way. Uh, why would you not just go, okay, let's, let's write this one off as a, as a bad idea. You know, we, we lost, but uh, the empire, an empire like that, that has, is full of its own hubris and self-belief and self-delusion is, is the last one that's ever going to admit defeat anywhere. There's even, a, an, a, there's even an element of, well, if we can't have it, no one can. We're taking you all down with us, yeah. Uh, let's go across the pond. William, you're going to say something. Yeah, I wanted to get back to Saudi Arabia here for a minute. Um, I found it curious about the U.S. withdrawing their military assets into Bahrain. And uh, there was uh, the, the U.S. claims, oh, well, we just want to consolidate our, our military operations into one place. <clears throat> and there was some... Uh, articles uh, saying that, well, the uh, U.S. wants to distance itself from the Saudi Arabia's atrocities in, in Yemen. Well, of course, the U.S. does the same thing, so that doesn't make too much sense. So I'm just kind of curious with the um, 
fuzziness of the Saudi Arabia regime, you know, who's going to be in charge and and the kings and and you know whatever you want to call them. I'm just kind of wondering if U.S. pulled their assets out because maybe they see something that's going to happen in Saudi Arabia itself. Right. That's quite possible. I mean, Saudi Arabia, I think, will eventually capitulate uh, to a new order in the Middle East. And I wouldn't be surprised if the, if the U.S. is hedging its bets there and, and you know, kind of expecting that to happen. But uh, the important point here to remember and we keep coming back to it uh, and everything we say is that Russia is the real uh, game changer here because um, in an, in another scenario where you don't have Russia we're doing what it's doing today the US would really be full scale bombing everybody and anybody uh, might even be, have sent, sent US troops ma- on mass into uh, the Middle East to restore order all over the place you know um but the problem is that by by pushing russia too far by fomenting the civil war in syria in order to seriously uh, negatively impact uh, russia um the u.s has provoked the russian bear basically to come down uh, into syria and it's set up uh, it has a military base a significant military base in syria now it has uh, it's Navy off the coast of Syria. It now has a military base in Iran. It, it more or less will or now does or will have very soon a military base in Turkey. More or less, in, you know, in, in three sides of, of the four sides of the Middle East type thing. And um, the U.S. Is, is kind of screwed because the reason they haven't been, haven't gone in before now and bombed the crap out of or invaded Syria, whatever, is because... Uh, because of Russian military prowess, effectively, because they can't do anything. Because, I mean, it's basically, it's a fair fight now. And uh, bullies don't like fair fights, basically. And the U.S. would lose in any in any, uh, any attempted invasion of the Middle East or any attempted, attempted bombing or whole-scale bombing of countries in the Middle East. They would lose a lot of planes because Russia would just say, okay, we're going to shoot them all down because Russia has effectively set up a no-fly zone over most of Syria. Uh, and they got in there first. And whoever, when you get whoever gets their no fly zone in first, that's it. You're the one who dictates who flies in the skies. You know, um, <clears throat> the U.S. was confident that it's uh, decades and decades of experience with uh, proxy armies, with death squads, with covert uh, paramilitary activity was going to do the job in Syria, and they just didn't expect that uh, Russia would come in and say, "Hang on a minute, that's a bridge too far." So. The U.S. really has a problem now. I mean, if, if Saudi Arabia falls and uh, kind of go the way or, or, or wiped from the pages of history, um, then the U.S. doesn't have really anything it can do. We get back to what Neil was saying earlier on. The only thing they're left with is some kind of trying to infiltrate by night a bunch of CIA operatives to go in and plant a bomb somewhere. Good job, but, you know, that's not going to achieve anything. And they can't... <clears throat> And with the history, uh, with the abuse that the U.S. has uh, subjected the people of, of the Arabian Peninsula, Peninsula and uh, the Middle East and Iran and the whole history there, uh, where none of these people <clears throat> like America, really, and, and they don't have any way to to turn it back, to turn it around and, and regain control of it. I mean, and as Neil was saying as well, if if that happens, if the U.S. ultimately really fully loses in the Middle East, then it's going to really potentially has a serious implication for the U.S. as a country in terms of the economy of the U.S., 
I mean, it could be the, the thing that pushes uh, the situation over the edge into some kind of an economic collapse. Of course, that would affect a lot of people around the world, but that's the kind of, that seems to be the U.S.'s, uh, whether or not it's planned that way, but it would be kind of like a Samsung option, like we said earlier on, where if I can't have it, nobody can have it. Uh, or they could end up blaming everybody. They could end up blaming Russia. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the headline where, at some point in the future, where the U.S. offers a catastrophic economic collapse and the headlines in all the newspapers are Putin did it, mm-hmm. you know, and they can actually give you a narrative of how Putin did it. Putin, when he went into Syria, messed up the Middle East, screwed up uh, U.S.'s influence in the Middle East. That hit, uh, you know, uh, Middle Eastern oil production or hit uh, the petrodollar. You know, the strategic alliance, economic alliance is a petrodollar with the U.S. and it caused the economy to crash in the U.S. and then that caused the whole world economy to crash and everybody's suff- suffering you know, the whole world economy is just in tatters and there's riots in the streets. It's all gone to hell. Just before the, you know, something causes the whole world to explode and complete another bullshit, you know, from the weight of the bullshit that's being spread, there'll be a final headline that will just spread across all the newspapers just before, uh, uh, you know, the world explodes from imperial hubris and it'll be Putin did it. That'll be the last line in the history of our planet. Putin did it! Kaboom. You guys, there was actually a I think we've got a caller. Can we can we take a caller? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So, caller, you're on the air. Can you let us know who you are, where you're from? Yeah, this is Stephen in um, Tampa. Hi, Stephen. Welcome back. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, um, Welcome. Yeah, I I really don't have anything to to add to your your interpretation. It's been pretty y'all's interpretation has been pretty stable. Uh, but there's a couple of things that I think is, are worth uh, pointing up here. Um, this is just my take on it. The United States has already, is basically um, already made moves in Syria whereby they've, they've lost their, in the long term, they've lost their uh, ability to claim super superpower status. And, um, you know, the, They've painted themselves in a box here where they're they're actually aligning with uh, with Sunni fundamentalist mercenaries that are just engaged in terror inside of Syria. And um, there's no way that they can paint it any differently. But what I'm what I am fascinated by are the the liberals, you know, the liberal progressives in the United States and how what their interpretation is of it. And. um, there's um I used to listen to Democracy Now um almost religiously. Um that was before Libya and then they, they were really uh horrific in helping promulgate propaganda uh with the Libya situation. But I look at their site and they have very, very few stories. Um they'll and they have a headline section where they just give a blurb about latest news in their intro, but as far as stories that they they give about maybe 20, 30 minutes to, you know, they have been avoiding Libya like the plague. And they've also had the same habit with respect to Ukraine. So, um, and, and the reason I mentioned democracy now is that a good portion of the progressive left here um, in the United States, you know, look up to democracy now as uh, authentic journalism. And, um, they have been so reticent to um, actually 
cover this subject honestly. And um, when you look at democracy now as an organization, the, the leader of it, Amy Goodman, she's a multimillionaire. And they're also funded by like, uh, they're supported by the Ford Foundation. And there was also um, the Tides Foundation that's connected to George Soros. So um, what, I, what I'm seeing here in the United States is the, um, the, the, the liberal progressive left is, is also, um, like the Republicans, they're also disintegrating. And um, I've lost some of my friends, you know, because I kind of like go a little bit deeper with Syria and they just don't want to hear it. Now, um, you know, getting back to what's what's happening in Syria, in my interpretation that this is the this is the mother of all battles. This is the make or break point for U.S. imperialism for the long term. And I, I was so heartened this week. I heard I just glanced at a blurb about China uh, making comments, you know, being definitively on the side of the uh, the legitimate Syrian government. Mm-hmm. Um the uh, there was comments I made by I think made by Erdogan inviting um, Russia uh, to be to to base some of their jets in the Interlake um, air base there and and um, I think that he was saying that just to piss off the United States I don't think that's going to happen but then the Iran um, Russia putting a base in Iran to to launch mm-hmm. a mid- that was just that to me was just incredible game changing news, you know, that, that we're seeing here. Um, again, the United States, um, there's, I just don't see any way they can ramp up the attacks on the, uh, the legitimate government of Syria. This is all like losing a losing scenario for them from this point on. And, mm-hmm. um, so anyway, is what are y'all? You might have mentioned this uh, prior in this show, but uh, what are your thoughts on the the situation with with Russia announcing they're going to be uh, putting a base in uh, Iran? What's your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, we did we did mention we did mention it briefly already, and uh, it is it's it makes sense. It's a it's a it's a natural progression, and the Iranians today say that they've given them the 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 base for as long as they want it, basically. So, you know, Russia could have a permanent military base in, uh, in Iran. And of course it's a shorter route to, uh, to, to, to attacking, uh, America's proxy, proxy jihadi terrorists in, uh, in Syria and defending, effectively defending the Syrian people. So, and of course Iran is heavily influenced or heavily involved in, uh, in, in Syria anyway, and as we mentioned before, the little the detail about um, about the, this makes strategic sense. Both, I mean, it's, it's strategically sensible uh, for Iran, Syria, Iraq, and Turkey all to uh, side with Russia and uh, to to thwart uh, American, U.S and jihadi intentions in Syria because as we mentioned just previously it seems that the U- what the US is uh, has opted for now their plan I don't know what plan they're on now probably G or H or something uh, that their plan now seems to be to set up a Kurdistan or try and support the, a Kurdistan in in northern Syria right across the, the top of Syria there as a block to uh, or, or as a strategic country that they would have um, uh, control over in the Middle East that 
that's all they've got left, basically. And that is obviously something that neither uh, Turkey, Syria, Iran or Iraq want to see happen because they have all have historical issues with, with the Kurds demanding chunks of their territory for their own state, you know. So the U.S. is just picking the wrong. Oh, it's just go yes. home, you know, just go home. Well, in, in geographically, yeah, in geographically, this uh, this um, theoretical uh, Kurdish state would be in the center of those countries that you have mentioned that right. have all that problems with um, with um, the Kurd minorities there in their in their. Um, so they all have an interest in not allowing this to develop. So if the United States' game plan is to carve out a homeland for the Kurds. It's right in the middle of a of a of five four states that would just right. see this as a tremendous threat. So um, right. I'm enjoying watching, I'm enjoying watching the United States fail, not because I just like oh my side winning. No, but you know what people have um, people have kind of like they didn't say it to my face, but they're like they consider me like a kook for like being so involved in Syria and then making. I've made friends, Syrian friends, you know, through Facebook, but they're really beautiful people. But the reason I, I'm supporting them so much is because I do see this as a pivotal transition. But more than that, um, I support the I support the, the notion of a nation state and sovereignty under our current configuration. And it's vital that you just can't a major power just can't roll a nation state. You know, for its own geopolitical long range, uh, you know, positioning. And um, mm-hmm. but but, you know, why I support the Syrian people in this is that just imagine that your family was there and you're Christian, you know, or whatever, Alawi, and you're being terrorized and you watch like your neighbors get killed and stuff. I mean, it's the, the strength of the Syrian people is what inspires me. It's not not that they're a victim. You know, and but no, it's their strength that's an example of integrity, and it's an example for all humans everywhere. You know that are that are that want a decent life. The, the first priority is you have to be able to defend your territory, defend your your family. And um, mm-hmm. Russia is on the right side of history in this. Now, one last thing, um, I'm not voting. I've I've made a definitive decision to not vote anymore in the election system here. But um, I do. I would. I need to to point out that I'm definitely I would definitely rather see Trump win than Hillary. And it's mm-hmm. not that Trump is dumb. Trump is very stupid. He makes comments that are just he's his own worst enemy. But um the thing is with Trump um I just see this guy as a little bit more practical in um in tamping down US imperialist adventures than I would, you know, mm-hmm. Hillary. So in that it's like I don't like Trump. I think he's just a, a narcissist and his only reason for wanting to be president is is really vacuous. It's just that he that's his supreme that's the position that he can attain to be the big the big man, you know, and it right, doesn't yeah. get any Yeah. It's ego. So anyway, yeah. Just, but yeah, yeah well, I agree with you on that one about, about Trump. He is Yeah, he he is the lesser two evils, you know, and people say, don't pick the lesser two evils. That's evil. Well, I'm not going to pick them anyway. I'm not going to pick them one way or other. But if it's, there's, there's the lesser two evils in a situation, uh, yeah, pick the lesser two evils if, if you've no other choice. Yeah, and the reason I, the reason I decided to, to, um, 
take a stand and not vote is this. I just can't conceive of, um, I think that voting just perpetuates the system and the system has become so corrupt that the mm. only way that I could ever vote is if it totally collapses and then we can, re- we, we can develop movements for renewal. And in, in that context, mm. I could see myself voting, but right now it's just, it's just horrendous. It's terrible. No way. Why don't you throw, throw a vote in there for Jill? Yeah, you know what? I'm not even going to do the third party thing. You know why? Now look, here's the way I look at it. If the Green Party really, as a as a national policy, were involved in communities and doing something to empower communities on a very much a grassroots level, and they were taking some of the monies they collect to a good portion of it to actually do that, I could support that. But as it stands, it seems like the same model where. You get millions of dollars donated. Jill gets to fly around, make some comments. And, um, you know, that's where it just that, – that's the limitations, the boundaries of what their their vision is. And um, yeah. I think – Yeah, I think, I think it affects – I think ultimately – Go ahead. It's a good idea. I think ultimately it's a good idea that you just uh, – from that perspective, that you just sit back and say, have a no part of this, you know, ideologically or just for your own, you know, in your own mind type of thing. Uh, you're just saying, I, I opt out. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not part of this team anymore. You know. I'm, I'm, I vote to not vote. Yeah, I'm just. You know, yeah, it's it, ideal. It's it's kind of like a test vote. You know. Yeah, and the other thing just that colors vote. my judgment. The other thing that colors my judgment is very significant. Is that I did come out as a whistleblower, exposing environmental crime, and um, there was absolutely no organization, and I and I put a lot of effort into it. There was absolutely no organization from the Sierra Club to the Green Party. Nobody even wanted to hear what I had to say. And um, because it's all about just generating money to support an infrastructure there of uh, permanent, you know, professionals in these organizations. But when it comes down to to really having solidarity, you know, when I was getting clobbered, you know, nobody was there. Nobody wanted to hear what I had to say. And um, so that kind of colors my that colors substantially my, my, my view of where we're at as a society at this point. So yeah, anyway, absolutely. All right. I appreciate y'all's show. Thank Thank you. And keep up the good work. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks. Steven. All right, Steven. Take it easy. Well, I just wanted to make a couple comments on the, on some of the things Stephen brought up. One was about the Hamadan air base. Um, a curious thing about that is that the way I see it, um, it, it wasn't really um, strategically, like absolutely necessary for the Russians to have use of this base. It's definitely convenient, mm-hmm. and it—I mean, it does—it mm-hmm. does help out. But it wasn't like a—I mean, it wasn't a game breaker, one way or the other. But what's what's really significant mm-hmm. about it, I think, is just the fact that it's happened. Because if you look at mm-hmm. Iran internally, this is the first time, apparently, in 70 years that Iran has allowed foreign military into their country mm-hmm. and to be based in any way there. Now, of course, the U.S. Mm-hmm. is, is all, all up in arms saying this is illegal. It violates the, um, you know, the U.N. agreement because um, Russia is basically supplying arms to Iran, and then Iran is saying, well, no, that's not what's happening. It's basically just a refueling area, which is, I mean, probably kind of disingenuous. Right, right. They're saying there are no <laughs> Russians stationed there. But, um, but for Iran to take this kind of stand... And and to uh-huh. allow the Russians to actually be there is huge, 
not only internally for Iran, but for um, it, it makes a statement, a, a huge statement about just the level of cooperation and support between Russia and Iran. And that, of course, relates to yeah. Syria. Now, if we look at Syria well, again, um, Stephen brought up again the the operation. Well, he brought up the Kurdish situation, and this relates back to what you brought up, Joe, about the the um, the jet encounters in Hasaka in north in northern Syria. Now, mm-hmm. interesting thing about that is that um, Erdogan responded to that, and he said, "Oh, this is great! It looks like Assad and I might be able to get along because he sees the Kurds as much as a problem as as I do." And so I know, and <laughs> so you, know, a, you know who, you know, you know who um, is behind all that. I mean, not to sound like a broken record, but I reckon Russia is behind all that. There's a, there's a Russian strategy behind all that to unify mm-hmm. uh, Turkey, Syria, Iran, and even Iraq uh, around this opposition to the Kurds. Get all these people to agree. I mean, the, the Russians have been sitting around planning this for quite a long time, and they're pretty good thinkers and strategists and stuff. And this is a this is a a very good uh, plan to find the common uh, interest among these countries because the U.S. thrives on division amongst countries that it can then come in and manipulate and control through that division. And Russia has taken the opposite approach. So how can we do it? Well, basically, Russia's strategy has been quite simple. Look at what America does. Look at what it wants, which is pretty clear. Look at what it, how it goes about getting that. And we will do exactly the opposite. So Russia, oh, sorry, the U.S. thrives on division. Let's find a way to create unity. How, what's what's the common ground for these countries that the U.S. is trying to divide against each other and so so uh, discord between? And and let's push that. And and the Kurds is obviously uh, the obvious unifying factor, you know. And uh, uh, but on the U <laughs> on the the U.S. I mean, I'm just like I wish I could write an article that was just raucous laughter, you know, that didn't actually need any text, just raucous laughter, and had a title. Uh, that conveyed raucous laughter or something like that, and just you just play the file because that would be that would be the response to the U.S. Uh, criticizing Russia for having uh, a base <laughs> in Iran and violating international law of all things. Uh, the U.S. being the 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 historical upholder of international law throughout the multiverse. Jesus Christ, those people, I mean, it's just, what do you do with that level of hypocrisy? Like, it's, oh my God, are these people for real? You go home and take your pills, you know, there's something wrong with you. Well, it's interesting, um, too, with the Hamadan Air Base, that now that Russia has their their planes there, they're obviously going to need some anti-missile systems there to protect that base. So there's an easy okay. way to get S-300 and S-400 anti-missile systems into Iran well, without having to go through. Well, interesting, they're already supplied. They already supplied those to Iran. Yeah, the S three hundreds, but the S four hundreds, no. Mm-hmm. But now there's a way to get those S four hundreds in there. Right. Yeah. Uh, we have another call, Harrison. No. Yes, we do. Caller, are you on the line? Hello. Caller. Oh, there you are. Are you there? Hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. Who do we have uh, with us Ryan. today? Uh, it's Ryan. Yes. Hi, Ryan. I'm based in Australia for uh, listeners. Um, just um, just in thought um, an interesting thing that you guys haven't um, really seemed to mention yet so far is that, um, or though you have in the past, um, uh, Israel's sort of um, like, you know, 
plan or strategy. I, I can't remember the exact name of it. I think it was like the Herzog strategy or the Herzl strategy or something like that of um, creating plan. the Yanon plan. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yep. Uh, to create a, um, a greater Israel. Um, and I believe one of the steps in that plan was actually to create a Kurdistan, like a, mm-hmm. a, a Kurdistan out of like um, Syria and, and Turkey and um, Iraq and so forth. And um, it's, it's interesting how the U.S. seems to be pushing for this um, sort of Kurdistan sort of against all of the odds. Um, it's almost like um, their interests have sort of suddenly aligned with Israel's interests because of their own position that they've forced themselves into. And um, mm-hmm. and now they're kind of like, well, hang on, the Israelis have had this idea that the whole time, you know, like maybe we should sort of try and do that and um i'm I'm wondering if that's sort of like a uh sort of any like a a last like a last um last strategy that the u.s is sort of falling back on because they haven't uh haven't got any other idea basically so oh the israelis have had this idea for ages so you know let's let's go with that sort of thing um but it's really sort of um, or well, with also the Jewish influence in uh, in American politics as well, whether there could potentially be sort of some manipulation going on by Israel into the United States to sort of get them to sort of think along those think in that dire- direction. Hmm. Um, and, and they hadn't sort of yeah. I was wondering if you guys think that's a possibility or what what might be taking place at the moment or something along those lines because well, um, Israel seems to be fairly quiet lately. Aside yeah. from, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Israel's always pretty quiet, uh, kind of working a bit behind the scenes, but Israel is a small country. And Israel, uh, in case you haven't noticed, the Israelis um, are uh, full of <laughs> hubris. Full of hubris. Uh, I mean, their entire state is based on uh, nonsense, their religion is based on nonsense, like, much like Christianity and, and Islam and stuff. Um, <clears throat> so, and there is a small country in the Middle East, and really, I think they understand that there isn't much they can do in any kind of a direct way. Uh, they got their asses handed to them in 2006 by Hezbollah, uh, which is, you know, a, a kind of grassroots army that, you know, with, with not much more than uh, guns and a few rocket launchers and that kind of thing. Um so Israel isn't really in a position to do anything. It's always used the U.S. to, it's always, you know, led the U.S. to a certain extent or tried to lead the U.S. by 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 the nose to keep Israel safe in the Middle East or to implement or affect or facilitate Israeli policy in the Middle East, which is basically keeping Israel on top and demonizing the Muslims and uh, pitching Israel as the only democracy in the Middle East and stuff. And, uh, you know, they can do that for a while, but things are changed. And I think as much as I would criticize the Israelis, I think they, um, they also are, are realists, you know, uh, and they don't, I don't think they have any problem with uh, a, a remaking of the Middle East as long as they get to cont- maintain uh, themselves as, as, as Israel as it is. And uh, as long as, you know, they're able to uh, maintain the land that they've stolen, all that kind of stuff, which may or may, may not happen, but, uh, they don't really mind if uh, if who's in power in, in Syria necessarily. Put it this way: if the U.S. has been defeated in the Middle East, there's not much Israel can do. 
all of Didi's schmoozing with Putin has to uh, be leading to something. Right, baby schmoozing with Putin and stuff. You know, the Israelis are kind of uh, heads their be- heads their bets. You know, they're, they 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 tend to because of their size and because they are they don't do understand their vulnerability uh, and they take that to hysterical extremes. Of course, at times, you know, where they believe people are everybody's coming in to wipe them out and all that kind of stuff. But they do realize their vulnerability, and I don't think they're stupid enough to kind of. Um, to try and do anything uh, without the backing of the U.S. If the U.S. goes down, if the U.S. is, lo- is lost in the Middle East, then so is Israel. But Israel, uh, <clears throat> the Israelis would be smart enough to foresee that coming. And maybe even if they imagine that the likelihood is that the U.S. is going to, that the, uh, the, the balance of power in the Middle East is going to change towards towards the Middle East to indigenous uh, uh, powers in the Middle East with the help of Russia, the, the Israelis would probably have uh, set in advance and would have already been making moves to um, secure their position under the new uh, <clears throat> the new leader, if you know what I mean, or the new hegemon in the Middle East. With, with um, Putin's sort of, sort of focus on um, international law and um, and sort of like the U the UN as being a um, sort of like uh, an, a super supranational power that. Um, like the the multipolar world sort of thing, um, wouldn't the you know like psychopathic regime in Israel basically look at look at that kind of um, power structure being in charge or, or that kind of like promotion as a of a like essentially a normal normal human sort of power uh, on an international level and think, well, hang on a sec, if we have to play by those rules, then, you know, all of a sudden all of these crimes, war crimes of the past are, are going to come back to us at some point. So uh, I, I can't see them. No, but they're not, they're not, they're not though. I mean, that's not going to happen. You know, we're not talking about some utopia kind of thing. We're going to, uh, what's going to happen, Israel has been smart. Uh, in a psychopathic way, in the sense that they have, you noticed that over the past, um, you know, ten years or so, their building of settlements in on Palestine, Israeli settlements in Palestine, has taken, uh, you know, has really has continued apace and even uh, increased. You know, so they're basically creating facts in the ground that really can't be uh, wiped out, can't be overturned uh, when there are, uh, as there are today, ten-year-old. Uh, Israeli towns on Palestinian land and there's more and more or even one year old or two year old it doesn't matter when they're really living in towns on Palestinian land for any length of time and they have communities there and they have children and they're people you can't just go in and say listen okay y'all are because you know again we're not talking about some utopia where historical injustices are just uh, decided on in a black and white kind of way okay Israel you stole this land give it all back right now because what are you going to do you're going to create exactly the same situation uh, as people are complaining about uh, in terms of the Palestinians. You know, Palestinians have been dispossessed of their land. Uh, the humanitarian crisis, you know, this is terrible, unjust and all that kind of stuff. So what are you going to do to solve that? You're going to turn... Well, Create gonna, a new exodus and then a historical grievance that will eventually cycle well, back well, around. Gonna, well, you're going to have news reports and videos all over the world of Israeli Jews being kicked out of their houses, dragged out of their houses and, and thrown where into concentration camps, or not, uh, <laughs> refugee camps or something. Um, well, more, that, that more, so, huge, more so, basically. More, more so, perhaps the the Israeli elite, like well, so called elite, like um, Netanyahu and so forth, sort of, you know, who, who, people who've been behind, sort of like uh, like Operation Cast Lead and so forth, um, being 
sort of you know brought before a, a war crimes tribunal or something like that. Like the people who are actually manipulating the, the normal people in in Israel to to like do all of these massacres and things like that. Like having those people sort of brought before like a, a world court of justice or something like the the Hague or something what about, something like that. Well, what about what about Bush or Blair? Well, yeah. Yeah, well, Bush, Bush, get the, Blair too, definitely. Get them on first. Uh, they kill far more people than the Israelis have, you know. Um, I think that um, Israel is going to try to play Russia like they've played the United States, mm-hmm. but Putin is not really going to have any of it. Um, he's smart enough to know what's really going on, and it will. The relationship will be similar to the oligarchs in his own country. Um, okay, you took all this stuff and so forth. I'm not going to take it away from you, but I'm the boss now. And, and this is, advice. yeah. And if you want to be part of the international community, this is what you have to do. Yeah. And the Israelis would be happy with that because the Israelis have got what they wanted. They've created facts in the ground. All the cast lead that you mentioned, all the bombings and all that kind of stuff have been uh, over over the past ten or fifteen years have been designed to facilitate what Israel has done, which is expand its territory onto Palestinian land and create facts in the ground that cannot be changed. And the Israelis, I think, would be okay with a new regime in the Middle East where they were asked to, okay, listen, uh, you can't be keeping uh, Gazans in an open air prison anymore. You can't be maltreating the Palestinians. You have to come to some accommodation because. In, in three or four years or five years' time or something, say this happens where Israel is kind of like there's there's high-level discussions and Israel is forced to start playing nice and start giving uh, start treating the Palestinians well. Um, they, I think they'd be happy enough to do that because they'd say, okay, fair enough, uh, we'll just stop treating them badly and they can have the land that's left. Not a lot of it, they have that land. And as long as someone is there to ensure that the Palestinians don't take back this land, then uh, we're happy enough because we have got what we want. We have secured Israel, we've expanded its territory, and we've created a homeland to the Jews. And and that's all we ever wanted, even though we were never entitled to it. But that's what, you know, so there's a lot of things that have happened that that can't be undone. And it would be maintained under a threat of sort of uh, um, existential punishment. You know, they would not want to become a North Korea type state that's right. completely cut off. Yeah, I mean, Israel is, an, is described as an apartheid state right now, and uh, so there's a and there's a hist- there's a, a template or an example in the past where uh, public opinion can quickly be turned around to uh, to not supporting or to condemning. Uh, apartheid conditions which exist in Israel and Palestine today um, and uh, so so that can happen and Israel, the pressure will be put in Israel and Israel will say okay we'll stop being apartheid we'll do this, but they're happy enough because like I said, they've got more or less what they wanted this whole idea of a greater Israel goes back uh, a long time and was just uh, delusional thinking at the time you know, <clears throat> and of course Israel has gone along with has exploited its position in the Middle East with the backing of the U.S. for for a long time, for 50 or 60 years, and it has done whatever the hell it wanted under the protection of the U.S. Uh, in a certain sense, you can't blame them for that being psychos and stuff. Uh, that's what they do. If they are, if they can do stuff, they'll do it uh, and get away with it. But if if it's turned around and they are no longer able to do that, at this stage, I think, uh, like I said, they'd be happy enough to, to live with that because they've achieved an awful lot. Unjustly, I would say. But... Uh, you know, 
I mean, just think sure, about. Sure I mean, you want to you want to redress can you want to redress grievance, grievances and injustices in Israel and Palestine? But there's so many other places in the world, uh, Ryan, where the same thing has happened. In fact, on a much greater scale, and there's no one talking about historical grievances being being dealt with or being addressed. You know. Uh, because people just accept the facts on the ground and, and let's move on type of thing. But the proviso would have to be that Israel stops treating the Palestinians as 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 basically as criminals or as, as terrorists, basically, and stops persecuting them, you know, and that is possible. And I think even Palestinians, after a generation, well, uh, will be happy enough to... You know? You, do you, th- you think the, the, they'll uh, unlock it? After a generation, the Palestinians would sort of look after everything that they've been through that the Israel has done to them. Like that, they'd, they'd sort of say, "Well, you know what? You know, we've got it okay now. Like maybe we should just, you know, <laughs> like take yeah. take what we take the crumbs, so to speak." Like I, I don't. Well, not think the crumbs. They would, they, they would have to. They would, they would have to be given a decent standard of living, and they would have to be brought into the international community. They would have to have all the trappings and all the all the frills of of a, of a state of their own and all the prosperity of a modern state they would have to be given that i mean there's there's precedence for that happening i mean i mean quite close to home to me you know i mean <clears throat> where for me like the situation in northern ireland vast majority of of catholics in northern ireland uh, today have accepted their position uh in the united kingdom uh because they were given the trappings, they stopped being treated badly and they were given uh, citizenship, elevated to, to the same level as everybody else. The same in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and this happened previously with the Republic of Ireland, but well, we're okay, so screw the, screw the revolutionary uh, fervor, we're doing okay, you know. People are fairly fickle, you know. And that includes Palestinians, you know, Palestinians are fickle. All they want is to live a decent life and historical grievances and, and revolutionary fervor and... Uh, Historical injustices and, 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 you know, the keeping up the struggle against the old enemy and stuff. All of these very easily washed away or pushed aside when they are simply a decent standard of living. Oh, I see what you're saying. I mean, it's unfortunate because I would like to, I mean, I would, I still have a long list of, of grievances that I personally carry on my shoulder as an Irish uh, revolutionary uh, against the British Empire. And I have, you know, I would carry on the armed struggle forever, regardless of what kind of standard of living I have. I would, I would sort out the, the historical injustices and I'd go and down hunt, uh, hunt, hunt down every evildoer who's still alive and bring them all to the Hague. Even if everything was settled and everybody in my community was against me and say, what are you doing? We're all having it okay now. We're not being persecuted anymore. What's your problem? Get that chip of your shoulder. I would say, screw you. It's about justice. These bastards are still alive. I'm going to go and get them. You know, uh, but nobody would support me, Ryan. <laughs> I suppose that's when it comes down to conscience, I guess. Like matters of conscience. Wow, whatever. Ryan, we're talking about a hypothetical here. The way things are changing, we don't know what would happen to Israel. Um, Israel was founded as a protectorate of this same empire. Mm-hmm. Its entire existence, it only knows having this psychopathic big brother. If and when that is removed, 
or its capacity to support Israel in the way it has done since its birth is no longer there. Who knows what can happen? There are millions of Arabs inside Israel, in quotes. They're not Jewish. I mean, demographically, over time, what if the kind of regime change, for example, mm. quite a sudden one, once Big Brother is no longer there, yeah. that transforms the whole nature of the country, in quotes, called Israel. So there are many things that can happen yet, you know? Yeah, and true. It's... It, I don't Israel as is in perpetuity. No, it's not going to happen. I don't think. I don't think. Yeah, it, it's status quo is, is possibly going to be able to maintain itself. Yeah, you could. You could find a change in government, a change in uh, dominant, uh, dominant, dominant political discourse in Israel towards the left. You know, the kind of like lefty and stuff. I mean, the success of Israeli governments that have, have ruled Israel since its creation in 1948 have been. Um, pretty much line with the U.S.'s interest of, of dominating, trolling by force. And they have reflected that attitude of, of you know, uh, they've supported uh, uh, the U.S. view that it wanted to have, that it needed to have, or it needed to project of the Middle East as this bunch of evil, potentially crazy dictators that needed to be beat up now and again. And Israel was like, yeah, that's true. You know, and not only that, but they're threatening to wipe Israel off the map. And look at these Palestinians trying to wipe us off the map. So that all fed into the Western, uh, particularly U.S. narrative of the U.S. Is, or the, the Middle East is a hotbed of radicalism and terrorism and weirdness. We need to be in there to uh, keep it all under control for the sake of peace and prosperity in the world when in fact it was just about controlling resources. But uh, if the U.S. is out of the picture anymore and there's a different narrative about what the Middle East is and what it's for and how it operates, well, then the right wing in Israel is no longer necessary for that and they'll be quickly moved out, you know. Again, remember, the people people are very fickle and their minds can be changed very easily. Uh, the only thing that keeps people in that revolutionary fervor and actually that gives rise to uprisings and stuff over the course of history is when people are mistreated, when people do not have basic necessities and the ability, basic freedoms, etc., um, that's what causes conflict and strife. Uh, if you remove those conditions, then people will quickly, uh, and like I said, in, in, in the context of, or in terms of a generation maybe, people would, uh, if they have it good, would put, put, put aside their, their historical grievances, you know? Because history is full of historical grievances. The whole history of humanity is one group of people mistreating another. Mm. Yeah, True. Well, anyway, well, <laughs> uh, in, in general, I suppose. Yeah, but I'm with you. You and me <laughs> can get together and we'll go on. We'll we'll go on like take down the bad guys. Uh, get your superhero cape. We'll get our superhero capes on. We'll go and restore justice to the multiverse and uh, and fight evil wherever it raises its head. You know. Um, <clears throat> and, sounds, uh, sounds good. All right. Let's do it. We'll, we'll work out a plan. All right. Cheers, mate. I'll, I'll let All you right, go. Ryan, so listen, you, thanks you for go, calling. Good... Thanks, no, no problems, mate. Okay. Have a, have, have a good day. Have a great thanks day, for everybody. Calling. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye, Ryan. Bye. What are we on? We're on 130. We're on 130. How about, Neil, do you want to fill us in a little bit on George Soros, seeing as how Ryan mentioned him? Which Neil? One or two? Neil one. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, George Soros. This is this is just music for my ears. <laughs> the guy's um, he's going through a rough patch, which is great. Someone uh, this DC leaks group. 
apparently a hacktivist collective, whatever, in the U.S. Um, leaked some 3,000 emails of sources. Uh, yeah, it's nothing we don't already know. It's information about all this political shenanigans. Um, basically dictating U.S. foreign policy, well, dictating, strongly suggesting to Clinton what should and should not be done while she was still Secretary of State. Hmm. Um, but this this latest batch of leaks, I mean, it's comprehensive. It's like minutes from his NGOs, white papers, uh, actual Excel spreadsheets, budgets, um, media plans, all detailing how basically how Soros has run or strongly influenced governments all over the world, as well as different financial institutions. Some of the examples... Um, this is, again, not news to anyone reading thought, but his plan to promote Western values and quotes in Russia, that goes back to the 90s, actually, when he got control of Russia's education system briefly. Um, documents showing Soros was meeting with top U.S. officials right after the, the coup in Kiev, practically dictating policy. Uh, <clears throat> there's one line in it where he's on record in the minutes of this meeting with um, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, uh, Jeffrey Piat, 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 where he says Obama is too so- Obama is too soft on Putin, and I was like, "That's golden," because that's that was the thing they all threw at JFK. Not that I'm equivocating JFK and Obama, you understand, but he's too soft on communism. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's he's too friendly with Russia. That was the the message from. Uh, from Soros. Well, uh, Neil, just let me, let me just throw a really short anecdote on that. Uh, Robbie Martin, who we interviewed, okay. he went he went to that meeting that he talked about. It was a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton where Robert Kagan was speaking. And he actually got to speak with Robert Kagan for a few minutes. And he was kind of, he wasn't sure what he wanted to ask, how, he, how confrontational he wanted to be. So he ended up just asking a couple questions, one of which was what Hillary's going to do in Ukraine. And... Um, he, he and Robert Kagan told Robbie Martin about Obama, and because um, Robbie had asked about Obama, and Kagan said he talked to him, and Obama had said regarding Ukraine, the reason that he wasn't escalating things as, as far as he ca- as far as he could is that he didn't want to start a nuclear war with Russia. And so he's like, really? Mm-hmm. That's Obama's exact words, and Kagan's like, yeah, that's exactly what he said. So just a little, <clears throat> yeah. Want to avoid the nuclear war? Yeah. So yeah. Well, it's, it, there's a few other clues that Obama has actually, well, appears to have realized the seriousness of the situation. But he's surrounded by these hawks, crazy people, completely insane people like Soros. Well, he's not directly surrounded by, him, but Soros gets into all the meetings with, of you know, <clears throat> top government people. Soros got the bucks, you know. He's Soros is Mister Open Country to Western capitalism, i.e. my capitalism, because I've got lots of money to invest in your country. I own lots of shares in all sorts of companies, and I want, and I want these companies to have access to your country. Here's what you should do uh, in terms of writing your laws and all that kind of stuff to facilitate the opening up of your country to West. It's just a, it, he's just a, like a, a, a speculator, you know, an extreme predator, extremely yeah. predatorial speculator, you know, and he, he's kind of like the Fed de la Gulen, 
of America, if you know what I mean, but for the world, you know. So yeah. in a way, Gulen had infiltrated uh, with his with his organization, infiltrated uh, Turkish society from the bottom up with schools and universities and yeah. uh, all sorts of organizations and stuff. Soros sets up these open society uh, organizations, and uh, you know that the ordinary people lobby for change. Like Ukraine was a perfect example. What were they all ch- ch- screaming about in Ukraine? Supposedly. They all wanted Europe. I want to be Europe. You know, I want to dress like Europeans. I want to be so European and I love Europe and Europe's so great and America, it's even better and stuff. And I love Coca-Cola and Pepsi and all. all. Can we have more McDonald's and stuff? It's just so much open side. I want, I want uh, also electronics. I, I don't have the latest iPad, all that kind of stuff. That's what freedom is about. You know, I want freedom to be free like America. And that's what he promotes people. That's what he gets people to do, you know, yeah. uh, liberal values, liberal. Uh, gay rights, feminist rights, rights for cats and dogs and sheep and uh, rights for everybody, you know? So, cause, uh, that, that is what opens up a country, right? It, it, it liberalizes all of the laws, the lawmaking uh, infrastructure and the politicians are all encouraged to, to throw off the shackles of, of state control of this country and bust it all open to the freedom of, stuff that comes from outside well one of the conspiracy theories in quotes was that soros was a big promoter behind getting european member states to open the borders to refugees mm. yet well there's no documentary evidence of it mm-hmm. so soros because uh, you could make money from it yeah he's on record there's it's in a memo i think in one of the leaks um a memo from him to his underlings in all various educational institutions he set up, the NGOs and so on. Listen, guys, we need to be on this. This refugee crisis is an opportunity to be exploited. I don't know if he used those exact words, but that was definitely the message. Um, so, yeah, he's, he might not have actually planned or crafted the refugee crisis in any way, but he was definitely one of the key factors in, in making it the divisive issue it became. Mm-hmm. And, and, Pushing. Soros is king of the West and what rules the West and is king of capitalism and uh, king of uh, big business infiltration around the world. So for him, having refugees flood as many as possible from Middle Eastern countries, from African countries into uh, the West establishes direct ties, familial ties and demographic ties between the West and those African Middle Eastern countries. which he then, you know, which will then change the the nature, the structure, the thinking. You know, it's about it's for him. It's about westernizing the entire world, and one of the best ways to westernize uh, the rest of the world is to have movement of people from these otherwise closed or relatively closed societies that he doesn't have access to. Have those people move into Western countries and have, therefore, eventually, you know, uh, eventually in turn they'll influence move. back. Right, back home, back home, and it all, it's about spreading Western values and, you know, in a very basic grassroots kind of way around the world. Uh, and uh, it's, it's obvious that when he's trying to, uh, open up societies and, uh, his, his favorite phrase, open society, which is Westernize these countries, open them up to foreign exploitation. It's obvious that, uh, <clears throat> demographics movement of people from otherwise relatively closed countries to the West, and then, the, as you said, the the connection between the two is a is a very good way to to do that. You know, um, to to expose, you know, to to muddy the, not muddy the water, but to 
you know, the great kind of equalizer type thing. Have everybody the same, basically, you know, the same values. Everybody drinking the same drinks, everybody eating the same food, everybody wearing the same clothes, everybody <laughs> buying the same uh, electronics, you know, um, that's what he's into. And it's just pure greed because he just, he has set himself up to be in a position to make money off all of that, you know, of, of westernizing the world because he is Mr. West. Yeah, and he's uh, uh, he's rabidly against uh, Russia as well, um, right? Because Russia is the one that's Russia. Yeah, Russia is like totally kicking out NGOs, kicking out sources NGOs, and saying no, Russia has its own identity and it doesn't necessarily have to be melded with the West. So it's it's uh, there's there's you know a lot of value and diversity are in um, you know in, in differences in that sense of people having their own uh, view of the world, but they can you know it doesn't mean you have to be in conflict and stuff, you know. Um, yeah, and the way he so, he went after Greece, because I guess he saw Greece trying to make some moves to get a little bit closer to Russia, because um, mm-hmm. you know, you know, EU really threw Greece under the bus, and Soros saw that and and uh, took the Ukraine uh, deal to Greece to try and and change their minds on the view of Russia to try and you know turn them around to get to make them not look at Russia very much and to help support them in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. There was a whole bunch of leaks about yes. that. It was real fascinating to, to read all yeah. that. That was a fascinating, that was one case study uh, of how he got into Syriza. And then, of course, that, that was turned around and used against Syriza. Oh, George Soros is behind them. Well, no, it's because he capitalized on the movement. I think it was reversed. Soros arrived on the scene after the fact to try and, uh, yeah, like you said, to, to get the Greek government to support the coup in Ukraine and, and to, to prevent what we could all see happening, um, a marriage of convenience and other cultural ties mm. between Syriza, between Greece and Orthodox Russia. So and I think he had some effect because that was part of the, the shutdown when mm. it all went belly up for Syriza last year. Uh, mm. They quickly distanced themselves from Russia. Yeah, well, he has a good selling point, which is here's some money. You want some money? Yeah. I mean, if some, some you know, decrepit old kind of... Uh, crone like him comes up and offers you 50, 50 bucks or something and you take it I mean you're going to be accused of being a Soros Soros agent you know but or he gives you a sweetie or something like that you know I mean it's not my fault if he said love to me and offered me a, a piece of candy you know that's what that's what people like him do um, but he should be at home praying for a happy death really that guy you know I mean should he, he should have slipped off this mortal coil by now there's probably a lot more in these files um, you can find the complete searchable files at the DC Leaks website. Well, they've they set up a specific one for this. Soros.dcleaks.com. There's probably all sorts of <clears throat> dirty underwear in there. No doubt. He's Hungarian as well, right? Um, no, he's him. American. Well, oh, yeah, he's Hungarian. Well, <laughs> and Hungary has recently decided they didn't want sources, uh, NGOs in Hungary. And I thought that was kind of mm-hmm. pretty funny. Well, he was one of the few leaders, the Hungarian Viktor Orban. Orban. Yep. To say, uh, to come out and say Soros is using this refugee crisis. He's behind this. Soros is the devil. <clears throat> Anyway, and he's anyway. Betting, he's betting billions too on a on you know moving in what towards cash and getting out of a or you know betting oh, on yeah. an economy crash. And, 
That's the other. That's the other news this week. I mean, this is what he should be sticking with. Uh, he's doubled down on his bet that the U.S. economy is basically going to tank, mm. mm-hmm. uh, which is like, hello, <laughs> people should be paying more attention to that. So Soros reckons it's all going to tank, and he's planning to get rich. Mm. And he's like, doubling his purchases in gold or something. Yep. We'll bury him with all his money. Yeah. Mm. We'll, bury, we'll bury the gold in on top of him, too. Mm. Yeah, the fresh the gold bars. <laughs> Uh, no, I would have a state. I would have a state funeral for him, you know. Which state? Well, whichever one you choose, but only if uh, only if we can bury him alive. <laughs> can we bury him alive with his gold? We can. We can give him a crown, probably, golden crown, golden yeah. coffin. You probably we could probably convince him to be buried alive with his gold. Because I mean, what good is he when you're dead? Uh, what's his first name? George. George. That's right. Yeah. George, you know, no good deal once you're dead. You may as well go in with it when you're still alive so you can enjoy it, you know. <clears throat> Roll around in your coffin. <clears throat> Ding dong, the devil is dead. The devil is dead. <clears throat> well, anyway, um, I think we've uh, done our duty for this week, no? Mm-hmm. Well, I think so. Yeah, did Neil one? did you want to just... Goes, we didn't talk about weather goes wild. Yeah, did you want to talk about a little bit about the weather? Oh, I did, but no, I'm not so sure. No. Louisiana got flooded. Yeah. Louisiana got flooded in a, quote, one in a thousand year event. Yeah. The year after the Carolinas got flooded in a, quote, one in a thousand year event. Yeah. The year after Texas got flooded in a, quote, one in a thousand year event. Are you seeing the pattern? Yeah, it only happens every thousand years. Right. That's what I'm getting from it anyway. Um. But how do they know it was a one in a thousand year event? They don't. But they have to say something massive like that because... should say one in ten thousand. Or one in a million year event. The last time a record show from a million years ago, the, uh, the you know, the scroll, not the scrolls, the, 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 the stone tablets uh, record that this happened one million years ago. So we can expect the next one in a million years. Yep, and Trump <laughs> went. Uh, and, well, yeah, to his credit. Uh, okay, yeah, photo op, but he went. Nobody else did. Yeah, Nobody Obama's too busy playing up. golf. Well, Hillary. Hillary. Obama's, yeah, he's on holidays. But he didn't want to go because it would upset the emergency responders' ability to reach the areas. Although they didn't seem to stop Trump arriving with a jet and mm. an 18-wheeler. Um, and Hillary, she posted on Facebook. Right? Yeah. No, fair enough. She hard she hearted <laughs> Louisiana on Facebook, which was good enough. No, but seriously, I think um, that might have won Trump. At least, all things being equal, the election. Unless yeah, well, you try to manipulate. If you look at the the official polls, um, like just a couple of days ago, Hillary was above. By a few percent, and now today it's switched around, and Trump is up, you know, one or two points from her, and that's and that's the official polls, which um, you know, as we've seen from various reports, are themselves manipulated. So, um, just thought that was interesting. Uh, I'm thinking it could be a landslide. Yeah. Trump. 
I don't know. We'll see. I don't care. I'm I'm voting for the the shadow government. Is that going to be on the on the on the ballot? Yeah. Is that going to be on the ballot? Trump, Hillary, or shadow government? I'll be shadow government. These nuts. We've been safe in their hands. We've been safe in their hands for so long. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Don't abandon ship or, now. Or Illuminati. No. Uh, or Illuminati. Yeah. <laughs> or the oh, globalists. The Illuminati party. <laughs> I'm surprised that someone hasn't started that. Yeah. Yet. They've, they should. There's like an official Illuminati website someone created. They should. Uh, they should run for office. Yeah. <clears throat> well, like Pepe Escobar. Oh, there's going to be an October surprise, so we'll never know what might happen. Hmm. Now Pepe is talking about the Trump forming coalition. Uh, Trump uh, winning, but then forming a coalition. With who? For what? With uh, diverse, not not Clinton, but with diverse people or whoever Jill Jill Green or whatever, not Green, uh, what Stein. Stein, um, and and whoever was to, you know, to broaden the appeal basically and bring the country back together, you know, after he wins, yeah, hmm. that he'd bring in other members because he's an independent, right? Effectively, okay. uh, yeah. I mean, he's you know got the Republican nomination, but he's still kind of independent, so he can to a certain extent do what he wants. Uh, he's not committed to only having uh, diehard Republicans in his uh, in his ca- in his cabinet. Effectively ending the two party rule. Yeah, we'll bring in Jill Stein as you know. That would be revolutionary. Be pretty cool for America. <laughs> Make it up start. Be a good start. Bring in and you know Jill Stein for domestic. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, we call the Home Secretary. Uh, Secretary of State. Secretary of State. No, that's Foreign Secretary. No, no, Home Secretary. Secretary of State. Jill Stein, first Secretary of State. Uh, oh, no. In the U.S., Secretary of State. No, what's Home Secretary? secretary. What's, in, is there in, secretary? Interior Minister, no. Uh, Interior Minister, basically, yeah. They don't have that in the U.S. What do they call it? Attorney General? Nobody cares. But what's going on at home? <laughs> anyway, no, no, there's nobody looking after him. Who's America. the Minister of the Interior in the U.S.? The equivalent position. Come on, you Americans. Mm. I'm Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, whoever. What are the what are the what are the officers? Oh, Secretary of State, Justice Department, the Justice Secretary Department, of Defense, Secretary of Defense. Okay. Secretary of Defense. Maybe the Secretary of Defense is basically home because that's all America really is concerned about is defending the homeland. They well, there's the Department stuff. of Homeland Security. There is a Secretary yeah, of the Interior. Yeah, there's a there US, is? Yeah, U.S. Department of the Interior. I guess, you know, they, you just never hear about them, so no one knows who they are. Because they're always making war. They're always <laughs> like, over there! What are we going to do over there? Who are we going to invade next? Uh, uh, but anyway, Jill Stein can be Secretary of the Interior. Uh, Alex Jones can be Secretary of State. <laughs> um, uh, no, thanks. <laughs> no? Why? I mean, if he can pick whoever he wants, no. Oh, you know, you know who should be Secretary of Defense? And, uh, um, that um, that Hawaiian yeah. senator. Yes, right. She's cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah. yeah, she's former. Yeah, she's Marines former herself, I think. Yeah. Marines. Yep. Former military. Yeah. 
Same and, with um, well, same with the state state senator um, Black. Oh, what's his first name? But the mm. the guy who's been uh, has a lot of good stuff to say about Syria. He's ex-military too. Yeah. And what about uh, and Sarah, Sarah Palin can be. <laughs> She can be one of the head of secretary of education. Education. No, no, no she, give her a pom pom. She can be the cheerleader. Yeah, she can be like the new um, Jen Psaki or John Kirby for one of those departments. Oh, she can be. She can be the spokesperson for yeah. the uh, yeah the state. Oh, perfect. So you want to put all the crazies in the in the foreign departments? Yeah, because I'm messing. That'll be so so incompetent that just like Putin will have it. Putin will have a field day. Like, uh, yeah, no, Palin could be the uh, Next Russian ambassador. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. she can see them right from her, <laughs> yeah, right from her window, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, next week we'll we'll have put together a dream team <laughs> with uh, Trump as president uh, and all the different positions, and we'll present them here. And then people can give their opinion. Uh, anyway. All right. On that note. Yeah. Yeah, the Perseid meteor note. shower was pretty interesting this year, too. There's a lot of fireballs that were uh, hitting yeah. all over the world. And uh, plus, you had that big sun diving comet as well. So it's like keep the eyes in the skies there. Right. All right. Absolutely. So until next week, everyone, take care. Yep. Thanks for listening, guys. Hope you enjoyed the show. Have a good week. Bye bye. Thanks for being on, Neil. See you next week. Yeah, thanks, Neil. Oh, thanks, ya. to our callers. Thanks, Ryan and Stephen. Bye-bye, everyone. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>